Monitor Monday is recorded before a live online audience. It's morning in America. It's Monitor Monday. For rural hospitals and small town clinics, big city health systems, and healthcare professionals, Monday means Monitor Monday. And Monday means gearing up for another week of audits by the government and health plans. Here now with the latest regulatory and audit news is the publisher of Rack Monitor and the host of Monitor Monday, Chuck Buck. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to another live edition of Monitor Monday. CMS is looking for partners. The agency wants Medicaid directors to partner with them to test new approaches to serve those who are eligible for both Medicare and Medicaid. Could this suggest costs cutting or true innovation? Rack Monitor National Correspondent J. Paul Spencer is standing by to report our lead story. In other news, a federal grand jury last week handed down guilty verdicts to incest therapeutics founder John Kapoor and four other executives for bribing physicians to prescribe opioids to patients who didn't need them. Famous lawyer attorney Mary Inman is standing by live in London with that story. Hospitals that treat homeless patients could get a break from CMS, but not until next year. Nationally recognized authority on the social determinants of health. Alan Fink Samick continues our reporting on this important topic. Monitor Monday senior correspondent Nancy Beckley has the latest hot topics and the Monitor Monday listener survey. And healthcare attorney David Glazer has another example of risky business, but we begin this morning with Dr. Ronald Hirsch, who is making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Monday Rounds is sponsored by R1 RCM. Here now making his Monday rounds is Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Good morning, all, and welcome to the new platform. Um, let me start with a warning. I'm going to be critical today. I know, that's why you listen to my segment. Well, my first target, not surprisingly, is CMS. Last week, CMS released a blog post from the administrator Seema Verma entitled, Recovery Audits, Improvements to Protect Taxpayer Dollars and Put Patients Over Paperwork. In it, Ms. Verma talked about the RAC changes that CMS made back in 2015, including implementing an op- accuracy target rate of 95%, a maximum overturn rate of 10%, and new lower ADR limits. She also notes that in fiscal year 2018, the RACs were successful, recovering $73 million, which by the way is a pittance compared to the $2.4 billion recouped in 2014. But here's the problem. This blog came seemingly out of nowhere. Why did she feel compelled to discuss this now? This information is not new. The RACs have been working under their current statement of work for the past three years. They've been approved to audit 133 different issues, including 59 physician issues. They're permitted to audit for DRG validation, which should be a goldmine for them. So what inspired this? Well, after touting the RACs like this, is CMS planning to raise the ADR limit? Are they going to open up the RACs to short stays? We just don't know. But I did see a notice on the RAC page that states that CMS may require the RAC to review claims based on referrals from the OIG or Department of Justice or the UPICS. These CMS-required RAC reviews are conducted outside of the established ADR limits. So maybe CMS is now going to use the RACs for criminal investigations? I'm skeptical that this will lead to anything good for providers, but time will tell. My next skepticism is directed at doctors. Last week, the makers of Experil, an injectable anesthetic agent used for pain management after surgery, 
reported a 22% increase in sales since January. Now, January just happens to be when CMS and other insurers started paying extra for this medication in ambulatory surgery centers to try to reduce opioid use. So if this drug is so good, why wasn't it used before January in ambulatory surgery centers? Well, it's because doctors own the surgery centers and using a costly drug that is not directly reimbursed means less profit for them. Now that the cost was reimbursed, the use increased greatly. Now, why didn't CMS also start to pay extra if it's used in the hospital for surgery? Well, that's because doctors already use it there whenever they want because it has no effect on their payment for this procedure. We actually saw the same thing with nursing home use after joint replacement. Many orthopedists used to insist on their patients going to SNFs, but the day that their bundle payment program started and the cost of SNFs factored into shared savings, their patients were suddenly deemed capable of going home. Is incentivizing providers like this a good thing? Well, we all know how well the HMO movement of the 90s worked out. Time will tell if this new iteration works. Thanks, Chuck. Thank you, Dr. Hirsch. That was the Vice President of R1 RCM, Ronald Hirsch, MD. Dr. Hirsch was making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. And now with the latest hot topics of the Monitor Monday listener survey, here is Monitor Monday Senior Correspondent Nancy Beckley. Good morning, Nancy. Good morning, Chuck, and I want to continue my reporting on targeted probe and educate. And this time it's for the JH Novitas MAC, which is Texas, New Mexico, Colorado, Oklahoma, Arkansas, Louisiana, and Mississippi. And this TPE topic was probe and educate on the critical care evaluation and management that's in E&M services, round one and round two, which was just posted. In the round one results, there were 105 total reviews that were selected for this review. And out of the 105, 85 were potentially moving on to round two, which means they failed at one level or another. And the top denial reasons were provisions for critical care were not supported. There was insufficient documentation. And the teaching physician requirements for critical care services were not met, as well as critical care visit billed as a split and shared service. So going into round two of targeted probe and educate, 26 of those providers were selected for round two. And of the 26 review, 14 are moving on to round three. And the same three top denial reasons, excluding the split shared services was, I mean, excuse me, the teaching position requirements were noted. If you're in the JH MAC or even the other Novitas MAC, you might want to take a peek at this particular target probe and educate and do a risk assessment against your practice. Now for our survey for this week, you heard Dr. Hirsch's segment on CMS Administrator uh, Seema Verma discussing meaningful changes and improvements in the RAC program. I think our audience is pretty sophisticated, so let's poll how you're feeling about this. We're feeling the love at our facility, or we've hardly noticed what changes select B. Or for number C, you're not a provider, but you think the RAC program's improved, and D, you're not a provider, and you're wondering what improvements in the RAC program. 
Chuck, we'll be back later in the program to give the results of our poll. Thanks, Mr. Very much. That was Monitor Monday Senior Correspondent Nancy Beckley. Nancy is also the President and CEO for Nancy Beckley and Associates. And as Nancy said, we're going to have the results of the Monitor Monday Listener Survey later in the broadcast. And coming up at about uh, eight and a half minutes after the hour in your time zone, we're going to hear from Alan Fink-Samnick, David Glazer, Mary Inman calling in live from London to J. Paul Spencer. This is Monday. It's May 6th, and you're listening to Monitor Monday. Stand by. Plan to join 600 of your peers in health information management at the 2019 Clinical Coding Meeting in September. Hear presentations from industry expert speakers on CDI, Revenue Cycle, Professional Services, Facility Services, 2020 Coding Updates, Compliance, Auditing, and Innovation. Collaborate during networking lunches and come away with new knowledge and solutions. All advanced full registrations receive a free AHIMA Gold Standard 2020 ICD-10 codebook of their choosing. Save up to $100 by registering before July 15th. Don't wait. Register now. Visit ahima.org slash clinical coding for more information. Thanks, Clark. By the way, there's a proven strategy to stop revenue leaks, and you're going to learn all about it in a webcast that's coming your way on May 23rd. It's here at Rack Monitor, and you can save 40 bucks when you register simply by entering the coupon code Monday. And now with the Monitor Monday Risky Business segment, here is healthcare attorney David Glazer. And David, every Monday I say, David, what's risky this morning? So David, again, what's risky this morning? Well, Chuck, today it's being nice to people, but not all people, people with high deductible plans. And when I say being nice, what I really mean is providing them with a discount because you're bothered by their higher out-of-pocket fees that they face. So this morning, I'm actually in Nashville at the American Academy of Orthopedic Executives. And this afternoon, I'm going to be doing one of my favorite speeches. It's really almost more of a game, Stump the Lawyer. One topic that's sure to come up is pricing. I realize it can feel weird to send a patient a bill for maybe 500 or 1000 bucks for a service when most people only pay a copayment that's maybe $20 or a 20% coinsurance. The result can be a desire to offer discounts to patients with high deductible plans. But that act of kindness can come with significant collateral consequences. In most transactions in the world, there is an explicit agreement about the price before a purchase. If I buy your house, we don't shake hands on the deal and then you spring the price on me later. But in healthcare, many services occur without the parties agreeing on reimbursement. This means they fall under the legal concept called implied contract. In an implied contract, the seller can only demand, and the buyer must pay, a reasonable price. But reasonable people might differ about what is reasonable. So let's think about how things might play out. The first patient has been in an auto accident and comes in for an MRI and receives a bill for $500. Their insurer pays $400 and they've got coinsurance of $100. Now, a patient with a high deductible plan comes in for that same MRI. Feeling pity, you elect to lower the patient's responsibility to say $300. Now, let's go forward a couple of months and the auto insurer asserts that your $500 price is too high and they sue you saying it's unreasonable. You're now in a fight and you're gonna have to defend the reasonableness of your charge. Supporting the $500 charge will be very difficult if you're providing an identical service to a walk-in patient 
for $300 simply because that patient chose to have a high deductible plan. If you want to be able to defend the logic of your pricing, you do not want to give a discount to patients with high deductible plans unless you'd be willing to give the same discount to an insured patient who walks in off the street. Having consistent pricing methodology will make it easier to defeat allegations your charge is unreasonable. Perhaps more importantly, it avoids the very real risk that someone can accuse you of insurance fraud because you're charging someone more simply because they have insurance that pays for it. Remember that an insurer's obligation to pay derives from the patient's duty to pay. If the patient isn't responsible for a fee, neither is the insurer. Now, I want to emphasize that if the patient is poor, I don't have the same concern about providing a discount. I can't point to a clear legal provision supporting me, but from a practical standpoint, I think there's no material risk. And I recognize some people are thinking, wait, patients don't choose to have high deductible plans. And on some level, I recognize you may be forced into it. But ultimately, a high deductible plan occurs when the patient is paying presumably smaller premiums for a higher deductible. Patients with a low deductible plan are paying for money, paying for the service in advance as part of the premium. So Chuck, I know the impulse to offer lower rates to high deductible patients is strong, but if you do, you might find insured patients and insurers screaming Pat Benatar lyrics at you. And while I would love it if they were singing Shadow of the Night or Promises in the Dark, what they'd actually be going with would be So Chuck, hit me with your best shot. Thanks, David, very much. That was healthcare attorney David Glazer. David is a shareholder of the law firm, Rick Pedersen and Byron in downtown Minneapolis. David, that's my best shot for this morning. A federal grand jury last week handed down guilty verdicts to Insys Therapeutics founder John Kapoor and four other executives for bribing physicians to prescribe opioids to patients who didn't need them. Calling in live from London with more on this story is famed whistleblower attorney Mary Inman. Good morning, Mary. Good morning, Chuck. On past programs, we've brought you news about John Kapoor, the former CEO of opioid giant Insys who has been under indictment since October 2018. Kapoor was accused of violations of the anti-kickback statute, which prohibits medical providers from paying or receiving kickbacks, remuneration, or anything of value in exchange for referrals of patients who will receive treatment paid for by government health care programs like Medicare and Medicaid. The law, often referred to as the AKS, is designed to keep medical treatment decisions free from the influence of potential monetary gain. Violations of the AKS can also be violations of the False Claims Act, which allows private citizen whistleblowers to report on fraud against the government and share in the recovered proceeds. Kapoor specifically was charged with allegedly paying hundreds of thousands of dollars to doctors in exchange for prescribing a spray called Subsys that contains fentanyl, a powerful opioid. Subsys is 100 times stronger than morphine and can cost tens of thousands of dollars a month. The scheme was brought to light by whistleblowers who were former employees of Insys. In August 2018, the government's civil case settled for $150 million with the whistleblowers sharing in the recovery. The parallel criminal case in which Kapoor was charged with racketeering, a charge generally reserved for mafia bosses, continued 
Kapoor pleaded not guilty to all charges in November 2018. The case has now gone to trial in federal court in Boston, and last Thursday, after 15 days of deliberations, the jury came back and found Kapoor, as well as four co-conspirators, guilty of racketeering. The jury found that INSYS paid doctors to prescribe their potent opioid medication sepsis and then lied to insurance companies to ensure that it was covered. Although the sentencing hearing has not yet been set, Kapoor faces up to 20 years in prison for the racketeering conviction. John Kapoor is the first major pharmaceutical executive to be convicted on criminal charges that relate to America's opioid crisis and overdose deaths. Other companies and their executives have been accused of similar practices. In the trial, which lasted a whopping 10 weeks, the government presented Kapoor as caring about profits over the well-being of patients. INSYS allegedly sought out doctors who already were above-average prescribers of opioids and invited them to participate in the company's speakers program. As long as they continued to prescribe sepsis, doctors were paid high sums for their speeches, even if nobody showed up to them federal prosecutors argued. INSYS also allegedly created a call center where its employees pretended to be employed by the speech-giving doctors. Those employees then fabricated diagnoses to ensure that insurance carriers would cover the cost of the opioid drug. At trial, Kapoor's attorneys largely argued that he was uninvolved in and unaware of the illegal schemes, blaming several other former INSYS executives, some of whom had already pled guilty in related criminal actions an argument that the jury seemingly rejected. The scandals have put INSYS in dire financial straits, with the company announcing that there is substantial risk surrounding our ability to continue, primarily due to mounting legal costs and uncertain legal settlement exposures. The company's stock has fallen 90% compared to its 2015 all-time high. Several other former INSYS executives, as well as former executives of other companies, are facing their own legal challenges. We here at Monitor Monday will continue to keep you informed as the various cases progress in what has been described as a year of reckoning for executives of the pharmaceutical companies who've made and continue to make billions from opioids. That's it for me. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks very much. Calling in live from London was famous law attorney Mary Inman. Mary is a partner in the London office of Constantine Canada. Thanks again, Mary. As we mentioned at the top of the broadcast, hospitals that treat homeless patients could get a break from CMS, but not till next year. Here now to explain is Alan Fink-Samnick. Good morning, Alan. Good morning, Chuck, and good morning, everybody, and welcome to the new platform. Well, since my esteemed colleague, uh, Dr. Ron Hirsch, mentioned me in his recent comments about CMS's IPPS 2020 rule, I was asked to join today's Monday Monitor Party, so here we go. Here is the lowdown on the history of the ICD-10 CMZ codes. The 88 codes and subcategories Z55 and 65 have been around for a few years. They encompass psychosocial and socioeconomic circumstances, aka those social determinants. Among them is Z59, problems related to housing and economic circumstances. The codes were grossly underutilized, so last year, the American Hospital Association recognized use of documentation across disciplines and not just physicians to justify the codes. Organizations are still getting up to speed on this action. 
So where are we today? Well, fast forward to last month, April 2019, one subcategory of code Z59 is Z59.0, homelessness. That category is being proposed in IPPS 2020 as a comorbidity. Now, this action will mean thousands of dollars for organizations and reimbursement for Medicare patients. And yet, as Dr. Hirsch indicated, NABIT CMS has taken the first steps. They must learn to walk by recognizing how social determinants influence the cost of care and establishing them as comorbidity or major complication in comorbidity. Well, first, coding all the Z59 subcategories in this way would mean a significant financial boost to hospitals. Z59.0 to 0.9 address basic human needs, inadequate housing, problems related to living in a residential institution, lack of adequate food and safe drinking water, extreme poverty, low income, insufficient insurance and welfare support. Patients with high home instability risk, well, they're 32% more likely to exceed the average hospitalization. Per HUD's 2018 annual point-in-time survey, over half a million people are homeless in the U.S. on any given night. 77,000 are chronically homeless. In some states, such as California, homeless patients have as many as 100,000 hospital visits a year. They're five times more likely to be hospitalized as inpatients and stay four times longer than a house patient at a minimum cost of 2000 to 4000 a day. And yes, I said a minimum cost. Do the math. 4000 times 4 equals 16000 times 100000 equal, well, ridiculous. The 2019 industry side effect, 12 hospitals and health systems have filed for bankruptcy due to reimbursement challenges. Many have merged to address population shifts and social determinants needs. 27 mergers in the first quarter alone. The partnership between the University of Illinois Hospital and the Center for Housing and Health decreased the healthcare costs for that system by 60%. Next, we've all heard about the 23 new ICD-10Z codes that have been proposed by the AMA and United Healthcare to address the costliest issues for hospitals, health systems, and other organizations. Adequate housing, yep, there it is again. Healthy food access, transportation, ability to pay for medications and utilities, plus caregiver needs. A hundred points. And $60.7 billion is spent annually in the U.S. on healthcare-related food insecurity. 40 million adults are food insecure, with another 10 million unable to afford basic nutrition. Transportation issues force close to 4 million patients annually to cancel, skip, or reschedule appointments with providers. That's $150 billion each year in healthcare consequences and costs for patients, plus lost revenue and missed appointment time for providers. CMS is already behind the curve with reimbursement, as most managed care entities cover the self-determinants at this point. The industry cannot afford for CMS to further delay approval of reimbursement for society's most basic human needs. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Alan, very much. That was nationally recognized expert on the social determinants of health, Alan Fink-Sandwick. Thanks again. CMS has invited Medicaid directors to partner with them to create new approaches to helping dual eligible souls who are eligible for both Medicare and Medicaid. But could this new initiative from CMS be more about cost-cutting than true innovation? Rack Mount International Correspondent Jake Paul Spencer is here now to explain it. Good morning, Paul. Paul, what is going on? Good morning, Chuck, and let me preface this segment by 
introducing a little bit of a lofty ideal that falls between Medicare and Medicaid. The CMS and all of the programs that are paid out of it are paid under what we refer to as a budget neutrality or cost neutrality ideal that is put forward, indicating that uh, no more money should be paid out than what is brought in in premiums or what is budgeted for that particular fiscal year. Uh, now, when we talk about dual eligible uh, beneficiaries. And when we mention duly eligible uh, beneficiaries, we're talking about people who are enrolled both in Medicare and Medicaid. Uh, we're talking about a cost to the program of over $300 billion, breaking down to eligible, 20% of eligible individuals under Medicare, uh, uh, dealing with 34% of the spending and 15% of Medicaid enrollees uh, who are duly eligible, making up 33% of the Medicaid spending. Now, some of this can be chalked up to age, but the CMS has a belief that there is not enough program integration between the two programs to be able to uh, satisfy their cost-cutting hunger between the two plans. On April 24th of 2019, uh, Seema Verma sent a letter to all uh, state Medicaid directors across the country and in the uh, applicable territories of the United States, lining up three initiatives that they are looking for as far as integrating care between Medicare and Medicaid for duly eligible beneficiaries. Now, when we take a look at the ideas that are laid out, uh, um, when they talk about integrating care, it looks more like it is a financial alignment issue, initiative more so than it is something that has to do with the actual care of the patient. Uh, so they're talking about ways to cut costs in three ways, uh, either capitation under Medicaid managed care plans, managed fee-for-service plans, which uh, they don't go into very great detail in the letter, uh, but they encourage uh, some type of uh, modeling for this. And then they also mention the third and very colorful area of state-specific models. Now, understand that when, as I've spoken about Medicaid on this program before, Medicaid is a patchwork of over 50 plans that are put forward by the state, each with their own unique characteristics and uh, also with a unique payer uh, uh, characteristics. There are some who have a higher level of traditional plans versus uh, those states that have a high number of beneficiaries who are registered under Medicaid managed care plans. And then we also have different payment schemes regarding out-of-pocket expenses on each state level. And then beyond that, we have uh, small issues with regard to uh, different types of state plan amendments that uh, go through uh, as we go forward and uh, states decide that they need to change up the make and model and feel and the scope of their Medicaid plans under state level. The letter that was sent out by Seema Verma can be viewed at this point as an aspirational document until we can truly get into the numbers that are being bandied about under this initiative. Uh, it is applied to the ideal that I spoke about earlier about budget and cost neutrality, and we will have to see exactly what type of state-specific models and managed fee-for-service plans are brought forth by those states that are most affected 
by duly eligible beneficiaries and the costs that are involved with their care. And with that, I'll throw it back to Chuck. Thanks, Paul, very much. That was Rack Modern International Correspondent, J. Paul Spencer. Paul is a senior healthcare consultant for Doctors Management. Now for the results of the Modern Money Listener Survey. Once again, here's Nancy Beckley. Nancy. Good morning, Chuck, and I hope our audience likes the way that the poll results look this morning. 10.27%, we're getting very scientific here, of our listeners today feel they're feeling the love at their facility about the reduction in rack burden. 69.7% have hardly noticed what changes that the rack program has brought. And of the non-provider community, 1.6% say the RAC program has improved. And of the non-provider community, they're wanting to know what improvements at 18.3%. Chuck? Thanks, Nancy, very much. By the way, RAC Monitor is going to be reporting on this story this coming Thursday. National Correspondent Mark Spivey's got that story. David, time for one question, please. A lot of our questions today are people who missed Nancy's segment and didn't want to. And I sympathize with that. So what do you do if someone walks in in the middle of a segment? Well, you can listen to the podcast. If you look in the lower left side, you'll see a link. Uh, in a few hours, that podcast will be up. And so for all of you who said, hey, I missed Nancy's segment, and there's more than one of you, that's what you do. You can listen to it or any of the other segments later. So, uh, Chuck, I will turn it back to you. Thanks very much. And that is going to be a wrap for us. And I want to thank you very much for being with us today. And special thanks to our outstanding panelists, Nancy Beckler. Remember, you can listen to her on the podcast. David Glazer, whom you just heard. Dr. Ronald Hirsch, Alan Fink-Samnick, Marion McCalling in live from London, and J. Paul Spencer. We thank you for starting off your week with us this morning. We look forward to your being with us next Monday for another live edition of Monitor Monday. Until then, I'm Chuck Buck reporting for Monitor Monday and Rack Monitor. Thank you again for being with us. Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor.